I could start today's show by talking about the stories we're going to cover. They are, they are good, don't worry. Frankly, though, I have bigger news. Back by popular demand, Barnaby Rain. Welcome back to Navarro Live. Although I suppose you haven't been on Navarro Live. You were on Tisky Sour before, weren't you? It's a whole new world out there, Michael, and I'm <laughs> delighted to be in it with you. It feels I've completely missed, different. I've, I've missed spending my, my evenings hanging around with you, so I'm, I'm so happy to be back. Well, to clarify, you are, you're speaking to us from New York, right? I am, yes. I, I don't know if you can see behind me. I think when the, if you can see the whole of my screen, you'll be able to see. There it is. That um, I'm in my apartment in New York, and there's a picture on the wall behind me of one of my favorite 20th century figures, Walter Rodney, the great anti-colonial intellectual. It's his birthday today. Happy birthday, Walter Rodney. Um, so, uh, uh, yes, I'm in the Americas, and uh, I'm, I'm very happy to be joining you. First story. Since becoming Labour leader, Keir Starmer hasn't been shy about embracing his cop energy. And it was on full display as he visited Stoke-on-Trent to reveal his plans for law and order. Quoting Margaret Thatcher and agreeing the rule of law is the first duty of government, he promised more police outside schools, 13,000 extra officers on the street and new respect orders. Now, respect orders um, seem as if they will be a lot like Blair-era ASBOs. They'll carry the threat of arrest and involve harsh punishments for misdemeanours. Keir Starmer also pledged to halve violence against women and girls, again by increased policing. Let's look at a key part of that speech. I'm proud of my previous work, proud of my record at the Crown Prosecution Service, but this is personal. Yes, it's Labour's plan to tackle the crime wave gnawing away at our collective sense of security. Of course it is. But it's also unfinished business in my life's work to deliver justice for working people. Justice, which I'm sorry to say, feels quite absent as I look around Britain now. The statistics spell it out. Serious violence rising again. Crime way too high. The charge rate, just 5%, never lower. A recipe for impunity. An invitation for criminals to do whatever they want, swanning around our communities without consequence. And it doesn't stop there. Our courts are backlogged. Victims trapped in a purgatory, waiting for the justice that they deserve. Antisocial behaviour is a growing blight. Knife crime, back on the rise, and not just in the inner cities. So that's Keir Starmer. I mean, I think we've been expecting this for a while. There are some pretty shocking statistics when it comes to, to crime. One of the Conservatives, particularly, you know, certain crimes just don't seem to be punished remotely, especially violence against um, women, but many burglaries, lots of mundane crimes, you, you never get solved, right? So, so there is a a line that Keir Starmer can take to attack the government. He thinks this is, you know, can shore up a weakness that Labour is sometimes perceived to have on crime. Let's go to a part of the speech that I thought was probably the most ridiculous. We need reform to get more police on the beat, fighting the virus that is antisocial behaviour, fly tipping off-road biking in rural areas, drugs. Now, some people call this low level. I do not want to hear those words. There's a family in my constituency. Every night, cannabis smoke creeps in from the street outside into their children's bedroom, aged four and six. That's not low level. It's ruining their lives. That is low level, right? So, I mean, maybe there is a real family in Keir Starmer's constituency who are a little bit frustrated that they can smell weed outside their house and they can smell it from their kid's bedroom. I can understand that being a little bit irritating. That is low level. We're in a country where you have thousands of people living in houses where they're you know, dying premature lives because the mold is so extreme. You've got lots of people who are having breathing difficulties because there's too much traffic on our roads, right? The idea that a key thing which should shape government policy is an anecdote he heard about a constituent smelling some weed outside their house. You know, fair enough. If, if it's annoying, you know, maybe they could put up a sign, maybe they could talk to their neighbor and ask them not to smoke weed outside their house. Maybe if they don't, they could get, you know, a counselor involved. I can see how there might be um, some dispute resolution needed here. But do we need to set a whole agenda for government based on some anecdote about some weed being smelt from a child's bedroom in central London? doesn't to me seem particularly plausible as a justified priority for government. It also, I think, just shows 
how far behind we are in this country when it comes to drugs. Because, of course, that anecdote wasn't chosen by accident. That was Keir Starmer wanting to demonstrate, yes, I am a Labour leader who will be tough on crime and tough on drugs because drugs have real hardcore damages for people. Of course, in previous interviews, he's intimated that he took drugs at university. Who didn't? But no, um, someone smoking weed in Hoban and St Pancras, which is his constituency, that's unacceptable because someone might smell it through their window. As I say, this puts the UK way behind some of our peers. And compare and contrast um, Keir Starmer in that speech to Eric Adams, who's New York's mayor. In New York, recreational marijuana use was legalized in 2021. And this is how Adams closed a recent press conference in Times Square. One thing for sure, one law that was passed is clearly being practiced right now because I smell some weed. Someone is smoking. <laughs> Someone is smoking. <laughs> All right. You smell that, you smell that Marsha? <laughs> I'm desperate to know um, whether, Barnaby, you've been getting baked on the streets of New York. Now it's legal. Michael, I've never even heard of drugs. But I'll, I'll tell you what's, what's ruined lives here in America. It's not the smell of weed, which of course offends me deeply as I uh, 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 smell it occasionally and, and have no idea what it's like to consume it. But what has ruined lives here is that a decade ago, there were 40,000 people in prison in America for weed. Over half of all drug arrests were for weed, most of them for petty possession. Black people were four times more likely to be arrested for smoking weed than white people, though we know that usage rates are pretty similar across racial lines. And arrests can lead to people losing their jobs and even losing welfare support. So while white politicians snort cocaine in parliamentary toilets, the criminalization of marijuana was another way of permitting the police to monitor, control, and discipline black communities by banning something that lots of people use and then concentrating on just some of the people using it, the state can surveil and repress the descendants of those here in America that it kidnapped from Africa or who came here fleeing its bombs overseas. And that's what drug laws are always about. They lend an excuse to the policing of social and racial hierarchies. And so they reassure anyone anxious about the breaking down of those hierarchies. It's what here in America, it's what the drinking age of 21 does too. So white privileged university students can get drunk every night and universities have their own police forces to deal gently with them. While just around the corner, the city police can harass black teenagers for drinking in the park on a sunny day. If you're a black kid, you're not allowed to relax too much in the sun because you're reminded this isn't your society. It's not for you. I live in a very Caribbean area in New York, and it's flooded with police who have very little to do now because they've lost their major excuse to intimidate people here. In Prospect Park, just around the corner, people can sit on the weekend laughing and having fun and playing music on speakers and smoking a joint. And it's quite a stunning thing to realize that people, especially young black people, who once were monitored and repressed and surveilled for just having a nice time, now are able to do so freely. Are there problems that come with it? I'm sure there are. Um, and the politics of crime is always, the politics of crime prevention is always about a kind of repressive gloss um, over social problems that you can't, a kind of sticking plaster uh, that throws people in, into cells rather than dealing with the social problems. I noticed when I first came to America a few years ago now, uh, how much more weed there is here and actually less drinking, I think, uh, in the culture than in Britain. Um, that was the case when it was very illegal, more illegal, more punishable, more punished than it was in Britain. But still, there was weed everywhere. Why? Because it's an anxious society in which people are worried about their jobs and their homes and their health care and their debt. Um, and it's a society where people live with such constant anxiety and want an outlet and a way to feel relaxed. I don't want anyone to be addicted to anything. Uh, I want a world where people can uh, uh, be joyous together, though if sometimes that involves the use of substances, I don't see why it's always such a dreadful thing. But um, uh, the politics of, of, of attacking uh, crime by locking people up is very different from the politics of, of, of fighting it at its roots. Tell me what you think about uh, Keir Starmer's law and order turn. Well, the thing I was so struck by, the kind of chutzpah of it, is that it comes just days after the Casey report into the police. So we've got Keir Starmer standing up telling us uh, that, that his big policy is to give more power to the police, an institution 
which we've just heard detailed, was taking evidence from rape cases. This is the institution Starmer wants to protect women. Taking evidence from rape cases, dumping that evidence in broken fridges so that it was ruined. Tashmir Owen went to the Met after she was raped, was called a liar and told she might be investigated instead. I'm sorry for this kind of, this, this brutal stuff. The founder of a Me Too campaign against sexual harassment within the police has to use a pseudonym to hide her identity from her own colleagues. Almost one in every eight women cops report being sexually harassed by their colleagues. At least one woman officer tried to kill herself. No action was taken by the police against her rapist. Keir Starmer stands up and says he wants this institution to be tasked with protecting women. One Muslim officer had bacon stuffed in his boots. A Sikh officer had his beard cut. The report found institutional corruption. And the response from the police chief was to deny there's an institutional problem, and then party political leaders reply by promising them more cash. So I think that's really telling. People with power across our country, the power to throw you in a cell, some of them carrying guns, and they belong to an institution characterized by violent domination and bigotry at every step. It's detailed and documented in an official state document, and this is the response. Give them more money. I think that tells you something about the kind of society we live in, about who matters and who doesn't. And it tells you something, too, about the uh, kind of anti-left politics that Starmer is, is, is championing, in which um, uh, Jeremy Corbyn was attacked, not just for wanting to redistribute some money from the rich to ensure we had a functioning health service, which, of course, we don't, um, but also he was attacked above all for his anti-imperialism, for his record of support uh, for people from Palestine to Chile uh, around the world victimized by imperial violence and his hostility to the various forms of violence of the British state. And so showing that he's loyal to the British state with all its hierarchies, this politics of repression, is really important to Keir Starmer. But it's not really about cracking down on crime. I think we have to say that, you know, one man dropped bombs that killed a million people and he's not in prison, Tony Blair. So as long as he's nibbling on canapes and not being surrounded by a swarm of police, nobody who wants to imprison working class kids for shoplifting gets to claim that crime is really what they care about. They care about a particular construction of crime that allows them to police social hierarchies. When inner cities rioted after a decade of austerity and after the police murdered an unarmed man in 2011, Keir Starmer was the director of public prosecutions. He helped to ensure that 70% of people hauled before magistrates after the riots were sent straight to prison. The normal figure is 2%. So he wanted to send a message to crush people furious about violence and poverty, to repress and discipline them again. That's Keir Starmer. And more importantly, that's British class society. I think that reference to the Casey report, which we've been talking about all week, is important. Because if you take anything from that speech, this is not someone who is thinking seriously about crime and thinking seriously about the police, like which are, you know, I, I do think that progressives do need to have an answer to these things beyond get rid of them, right? You, you, regular viewers of this show will know that. But a, a serious response to the Casey report isn't just to stand up and say, oh, well, let's bring back ASBOs, because you know, this is just so obviously virtue signaling. He's not interested in taking the Casey report seriously because he doesn't think it it sort of plays to his, his strategy, which is to say, I'm all I have to show the British public is that I'm pro-cop. That, that's all he wants to do. And so he's just writing policy based on virtue signaling to say, don't worry, look, I might be a Labour leader. I might be a lefty lawyer, but I'm pro-cop. And, and we're sort of getting a whole policy program based on that one messaging desire, which doesn't really seem like um, what the nation deserves. Um, on a potentially related theme, for someone so obsessed with law and order, Starmer doesn't seem too concerned about breaking or at least bending the rules. In Leicester, 19 sitting Labour councillors have been told they won't be able to stand in May's local elections. That's after the party's national executive swooped in to take over selections. Now, this is 40% of Labour's councillors who have been told you can't be councillors anymore. Some of them have served their ward for decades. The Leicester Mercury spoke to deselected councillor Paul Wesley, who told them this. We are disgusted with the way long, hardworking councillors have been deselected. After 28 years representing this ward for that party and to be treated like that, it's utter contempt for the councillors who support their local communities. Members always had meetings in their local areas to select who they wanted as councillors. That was taken away by the National Party. Democracy died that day. It should be down to local members. And it gets even worse. Of the 19 councillors deselected, 15 of them are BAME, so Black, Asian and Minority Ethnic, or people from BAME backgrounds. Now, that means that Labour has deselected nearly 60% of its BAME councillors in Leicester. Only four, though, of the city's 22 white councillors were deselected. 
This, of course, comes just days after Martin Ford appeared in an Al Jazeera documentary. His report identified a hierarchy of racism in the Labour Party, and apparently it has been completely ignored by the party. Here's a clip from that documentary. There were a number of submissions I received um, from party members suggesting that they did feel that the party had wider issues with their approach to racial discrimination. Quite a high proportion of black and Asian councillors or prospective MPs felt they'd been subjected to disciplinary action, which had been deliberately timed uh, to exclude them from qualifying processes or selection. My slight anxiety is in terms of the perception of a hierarchy and genuine underlying concerns about wider racial issues, that it's not, in my view, a sufficient response to say that was then, this is now. So you're saying the Labour Party response, that was then, this is now, what's in the Ford report doesn't matter because that was the old leadership, we're under new leadership now, so who cares? Well, this is happening now, right? I think it's, it's very clear. If you needed evidence that there are questions to answer, I think this is it. Barnaby, I don't know how much attention you've been paying to the sort of intricacies of inter-Labour Party politics, but it does seem, I mean... The authoritarianism from the top of the Labour Party when it comes to selections, when it comes to excluding anyone remotely left-wing from standing to be an MP. And I mean, I don't know the details of these councillors in Leicester, but the idea that you can just take out 40% of a council by diktat from the top, if that had happened under Jeremy Corbyn's leadership, this would have made some headlines, right? Yes, there's always an irony that uh, the left, whenever we try to uh, change the world and recognise that changing the world requires taking on some concentrated power, we get called Stalinists or, um, or, or tyrannical or authoritarian, all these labels that were hurled at Jeremy Corbyn. But when the right wants to do the much easier work of crushing uh, incipient challenges to the ruling class and the British state and power uh, by uh, getting rid of some councillors in Leicester, um, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's able to parade itself as a champion of democracy. Margaret Thatcher, of course, who wanted to shrink the state, uh, uh, crushed local government representation for London, the GLC. Um, uh, uh, the Labour Party aided her in crushing dissident Labour councillors in Liverpool and Lambeth. Um, there's a long history of, of, of right-wingers, both in the Conservative Party and the Labour Party, attacking um, uh, any structures of democracy in which local people, especially people, to be honest, in multiracial working class inner cities, um, try to represent themselves uh, in forms more genuinely democratic, more immediately democratic than the remote institutions of Westminster and the bureaucracies of the British state in London. Um, so there's a very long history of this hostility to democracy um, coexisting in this strange ideological topsy-turvy world with a claim that the left uh, is anti-democratic because uh, we, 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 we have trouble with some of the institutions of concentrated power in this country from Whitehall to the military to uh, Rupert Murdoch. Um, there's also, of course, a story about the kind of um, uh, racism of, of, of the Labour Party. Um, and the Labour Party has always been contested terrain in terms of the battle between racist and anti-racist, just as the British working class has, just as British socialist politics has. But of course, the Labour Party has this long history um, uh, of, of, uh, of sections of the party supporting colonial violence. And, and um, uh, in 1944, Labour conference called for the transfer it's a nice word for ethnic cleansing of the Palestinian people. Then Keir Starmer, as Labour leader, refuses to attend Ramadan events, religious events, uh, because some people there support Palestinians. The Labour Party uh, uh, bombed Korea, was silent about the American slaughter in Vietnam, at least its leadership was uh, uh, engaged in colonial slaughter in Malaya. Uh, long, long history leading up to, of course, the brutalities in Afghanistan and Iraq. Um, and to some extent, this is, though it's always been challenged, the politics of social democracy, in which Labour is capital's B team, running the empire loyally when the Tories really mess up and there's a need for another party uh, to switch out. You know, Kwame Nkrumah, the anti-colonial leader, said that America is a one-party state, but with typical American extravagance, they have two of them. Uh, Keir Starmer's mission, I think, is to make Britain something like that. And the politics of social democracy means affirming the place within the nation of some of its working class population, giving them good jobs, good education, good housing. Even that can be a bit far sometimes for some of the hard right of the Labour Party. But always that social democratic project ended up excluding people because it wasn't about taking down the institutions of hierarchy, domination, violence that structure the British state, but just affirming within them uh, some of the working class population of Britain. Jeremy Corbyn was so challenging to the, the Labour mainstream because he came from that small wing of the Labour Party that didn't believe in that kind of politics, that talked and dreamed about freedom for people uh, in Britain and overseas. But that's the kind of politics that Keir Starmer represents, the politics of the cop, the politics of the prosecutor, the politics of the British state. Um, 
who wants that state doubtless to tax the wealthy a little bit more when our institutions are really crumbling, though it's even going to be a battle to get him to do that. But he certainly doesn't want to take apart the institutions of violence and exclusion on which that state prospers. And so it's no surprise that when some of the communities and the people that are most attacked by the state, whether it's people overseas in Palestine or in Iraq or in Afghanistan, or whether it's people here at home uh, who aren't the right skin colour for the police not to harass them, uh, Keir Starmer doesn't have their back. That's not very surprising. Let's go to our next story. The Bank of England has today hiked interest rates for the 11th time in just over a year. Rates now stand at 4.25%, an increase of 0.25 percentage points on the previous month. The decision comes after the surprise jump in inflation in February. In that month, prices were 10.4% higher than they were a year earlier. That's up from 10.1% in January. The short-term jump was largely because of an increase in food prices, driven in part by a shortage of vegetables and salad. After the interest rate hike was announced, the governor of the Bank of England, Martin Bailey, explained the decision. We've seen signs of inflation really peaking now, but of course it's far too high. Now, we think it's going to come down sharply, really from the early summer onwards. But we haven't seen that happen yet. We had some news this week which was unfortunately going a bit the other way. We think there's probably some one-off elements of that. But we need to see it starting to come down progressively and get back to target. So that's what we need to see. It seems like some of the pressures, the inflationary pressures that you've been looking for uh, as almost a condition of you doing further rises, that they're calming down a little bit. There are signs of, of calming down, and of course that's encouraging. We've seen, as we noted today, some signs that wage, yeah, wage increases in the private sector are beginning to you know, even often come down. Uh, so that's, a, you know, that, that's, that's obviously a good sign in terms of inflationary pressures in the economy. We've seen quite a sharp further reduction in energy prices uh, since we last uh, made our last decision. That's also encouraging. But we need to see this translated now into the, into the big fall in inflation we expect. And of course, we know that that's what we need to see for all the people in this country whom inflation is, is hurting. Great news, guys. Wage rises are slowing down. I bet you're all incredibly worried about that. Remember, wages are still well below inflation, right? So it's, it's not like, oh, finally, um, wages aren't dramatically going ahead of inflation. No, the, people are getting real terms wage cuts. And you've got the governor of the Bank of England saying, great, wage rises are slowing down. Now, let's talk about the decision to hike interest rates. I spoke earlier to James Meadway. I started by asking him whether he thinks the bank made the right decision. Well, no, it didn't make the right decision. And there was some dissent on the Monetary Policy Committee that makes these decisions for the Bank of England. They meet every sort of month or so uh, and decide whether to pay interest rates up or down or keep them the same. Two members of the Monetary Policy Committee, a minority, decided that they wanted to keep interest rates the same, which would have been a better decision uh, than trying to jam them up still further. Uh, reflects actually a real uncertainty in not just the Bank of England, but across central banks across the world, really, that by increasingly putting up interest rates, which for reasons we've talked about is not actually a very effective way of dealing with inflation, but by thinking that you have to keep doing this to deal with inflation, you are increasing the risk of a financial crisis and a banking crisis somewhere down the line. So I think that's where the dissent comes from. It's a bad decision. It's going to hurt people. It's going to hurt people with mortgages that depend on the Bank of England uh, base rates, most obviously. It's pushing us further. And this is the intention of doing this, by the way. It's pushing us closer and closer into a recession. This is why they put up interest rates. The idea is to induce more unemployment, frighten people into not asking for such high pay rises, like everyone's getting, ha-ha. Uh, and then in that way, you start to bring down inflation. That's the theory. That's what they think they're doing. So it hurts people. It's not going to be effective against the kind of inflation we have, which, as we saw this week, is coming from food prices, um, often imported from the rest of the world, not something to do with what the Bank of England's doing. And, of course, it risks um, potentially, as the bank will admit, uh, a kind of financial crisis, a banking crisis, that there's a quite a shaky system out there. Interest rate rises increase the amount of shakiness that's, that exists, as we've seen with bank failures just in the last couple of weeks. Is it a reasonable thing to say? So, so given that the inflation of the last month, in any case, was sort of driven by the price of salad and vegetables, presumably the only way raising interest rates will reduce the price of salad and vegetables is if it means that poorer people have to forego buying salad and vegetables because you're only going to lower the price by not buying it. Are they trying to price poor people out of buying vegetables, James? 
Well, this would be a slightly more rational way of thinking about it. Um, it's, it's not that people are going to stop buying salad and vegetables or other food. I mean, in the end, like you might think last year that if the cost of keeping your house warm is too high, you can like turn the heating off and sit in a jumper and shiver. It's not very desirable. Actually, you know, people die because they try and do this sort of thing, particularly elderly people. But you can sort of do that. If it's food, at some point you are going to have to eat. So if you're trying to price people out of buying food to try and keep food prices down, this isn't going to work. And when the price of that food is driven, as when you have about half, a bit under half of the food that we eat in this country is imported, that price is determined by what happens in the rest of the world. And if that's big, you know, ecological shocks of various sorts, harvest failures, um, bad weather they were talking about in, in sort of Southern Europe and, and North Africa, which damaged uh, tomato crops, for example. All of these things, by the way, sort of feed back into climate change. If you're fiddling about with interest rates, this isn't going to affect food prices. And, and their food prices are likely to carry on rising for a while yet. So there's going to be a continual pressure on overall inflation for a while yet. Now, it's likely, we keep saying this, it is likely to come down again over the next few months, but it's going to stay a lot higher than we're used to. And if part of that is food price inflation, that's going to feel very, very uncomfortable, particularly if you're poorer, when you have to spend more proportionately of your income on essentials like food. So it hits the poorest hardest. It doesn't necessarily do very much about overall inflation rates. I suppose one way interest rates could potentially affect the price of imported food is via its effect on the pound, right? So I know the Fed, so the US central bank, they raised their interest rate yesterday. As far as I understand it, if, if they raise their rates and we don't raise our rates, then that will encourage savers to take them, or you know, big global investors to take their money out of Britain and put it in America. And that could cause the value of the pound to fall and then salad would get even more expensive. Is there something to that? Is, it, is this a, a move potentially to try and defend the pound? The, the bank wouldn't often put it like that, but, but in practice, yes, that's kind of one of the mechanisms by which the Federal Reserve, which sets the pace on interest rate rises for other central banks around the world, because it has some command over the dollar, um, that when it puts up interest rates, it makes dollar assets more attractive for people with money to invest. So all that money floods in the general direction of US assets because you get more money from putting your money in uh, US assets when interest rates go up. That means there's pressure on the pound that starts to come down. We saw this last year, actually, with a big decline in the value of the pound as the dollar started to rise in value as interest rates uh, for the US started to rise. So there's pressure there, um, which potentially feeds into the cost of importing food because the value of the pound has fallen, costs more to import. So there's kind of a link there. And certainly, when once the Fed starts saying, we will be putting up interest rates, and they are putting up interest rates. Other major central banks will tend to follow suit for those sorts of reasons. So, really, the Bank of England's trailing uh, along here. It doesn't affect domestic uh, inflation in quite the way they want because there's only a limited part of it which is which is sort of imported inflation in, the, in this way. And it does mean that as the the interest rates in the US increase. As the Federal Reserve also says, there's a lot of pressure on particularly some of the smaller US banks. These are kind of the medium-sized banks like Silicon Valley Bank, which failed, what, 10 days ago, I think it is now. There's a lot of pressure on them who, over the last decade, have got very used to very low interest rates, have business models like Silicon Valley Bank that are basically based on having low interest rates. And that's how they're going to try and make their money out of it. If that starts to look shaky, then you're looking at far wider spread, potentially wider spread uh, banking failures across the rest of the system. Now, the Federal Reserve, the Bank of England, absolutely everyone, is going to insist that actually the system's resilient and that they're ready to prop everything up and to guarantee deposits and do all these other things. But there's a real clash coming in now between this aim that central banks are supposed to have, which is restraining inflation, which, by the way, the one tool they have, which is interest rates, doesn't really work very well on. And the deeper thing they're supposed to be doing, which is preserving financial stability. That's the reason a central bank exists fundamentally. This is why they came into existence, was to try and preserve the stability of the banking system. If continual interest rate rises start to threaten uh, banking stability, it's running hard against the fundamental thing a central bank is supposed to do. So they're in a kind of dilemma at the minute. It's a dilemma where the unspoken term, by the way, in all of this discussion, something you rarely hear from the government, from central banks, from wider sort of newspaper discussion is what's actually happened to profits in the middle of all this. Because never mind saying, oh, it's a wage price spiral. Oh, we want to restrain wage increases. Profits have exploded. 
Profits are absolutely through the, the roof in the last uh, few years, since the pandemic in particular. A uh, good report from Unite the Union just yesterday saying, you know, profit margins for 350 biggest listed companies in Britain up 89% since the pandemic. So if our prices are going up, the prices we're paying for things are going up, wages aren't going up as much as prices, somebody else is making a profit. And that's exactly what's happening. And nothing the Bank of England is doing with interest rates, nothing the government talks about addresses that really fundamental question of profits and its relationship to price rises. That was James Meadway speaking to me earlier today. And we're going to stick to this topic, this theme of central banks raising interest rates and what it means. John Stewart is a liberal TV host in the USA. And last week, he pulled off one of the most impressive interviews I think I've ever seen. He was interviewing Larry Summers, who was Treasury Secretary under Bill Clinton and Director of the National Economic Council under Barack Obama. The background to the disagreement between Summers and Stewart is that Summers wants the US Federal Reserve to aggressively hike interest rates to tackle inflation. John Stewart knows that only works by intentionally increasing unemployment, and he's not convinced that's a good idea. We had massive stimulus and an economy that could only produce so much. We had huge levels of demand, and those huge levels of demand kept pushing up prices and pushing up wages. But ultimately, it was uh, you put too much water in the bathtub, the bathtub overflows. You put too much demand into uh, the economy, and you get high and rising uh, prices. But the San Francisco Fed says that is demand is maybe 30 to 35 percent of the inflation. Wages are really around 20 percent of the inflation. There's a huge corporate profit aspect to it. There's a huge supply chain aspect to it. But our method for controlling it seems really much more focused on wages and employment. There's certain sicknesses you can have where there's a drug and it has side effects. And everybody hates the side effects. And no doctor wants their patient to suffer the side effects. But if you don't address the sickness, you're going to have a bigger problem down the road. No doctor wants their patient to suffer side effects. That was Larry Summers sounding really genuinely compassionate about the people who his favoured policy would throw on the unemployment heap. This is Larry Summers saying interest rates hikes. Interest rates should be hiked even if it's painful for workers because in the long term, the alternative would be worse. Again, John Stewart isn't really taking him at his word. The stock market assets have gone up 150%. CEO pay has gone up 1,500%. Workers' wages haven't gone up at all. I think you're misdiagnosing the sickness. First, John, inequality is a terrible thing. The most serious problem the American economy has has been the cleavages between those like you and me who are very fortunate that's why we need a strategy of strengthening uh, labor power uh, in the economy. The question, though, is, is it an issue that somebody whose control is over setting interest rates and printing money can do much about? Now, you could say... Boom! Boom! You could say that leaving macroeconomic management to a central bank would be a mistake. And you'd be right if we gave this responsibility back to governments, as Maynard Keynes suggested, we could tax the rich when inflation gets high instead of giving the job to central banks who can just say, oh, I'm sorry, but the only thing we can do is pull the increase unemployment lever. We don't make the rules. There's nothing we can do. Let's go back to the interview. The tools that we have, though, are basically saying to somebody, everyone's paying more for gas and groceries, and that's really hard. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to throw 10 million of them out of work so that we all don't have to share that burden. Why aren't we attacking corporate profit in any way? Because that's been estimated to be 30% of inflation, 40% of inflation. I don't think it's a tenable view that all of a sudden corporations became greedy. Of course, there's monopolies in the economy, John, and we should be for They've been much bragging more about aggressive, it on much their more aggressive calls. than we were. We're, they're, they're, On their earnings calls, they're saying our profits have never been higher. We're killing it. The markups during the pandemic are sometimes they're saying 70% of what they were. If there was a huge increase in the demand for shrewd television commentary, I imagine the demand for what you do would go way up. And I imagine you'd convert that into higher wages. 
and getting more and getting paid better. You're saying it's the market at work. I don't think you'd call yourself a gouger um, when you. I would uh, absolutely when, call myself a when gouger. you did that. Um, and by the way, the effect a, of uh, the talk show business is very different than the effect of Exxon Mobil. And that's the only bit of the interview which I say I think was excellent, where I think John Stewart missed a trick because he should have said, yes, I did well out of the pandemic. And guess what? I should be taxed way more than I'm being taxed. Now, I don't have enough background to know if John Stewart is in favor of higher taxes on the rich, but I think that would have been sort of a, a demonstration that he was willing to put his, his money where his mouth was. I mean, in any case, let's go to our final clip here. Summers tries to get back at Stewart by highlighting who employs him. Isn't this show going to be on Apple TV? Correct. And I think Apple TV is worth about five times as much as Exxon. I think Apple's price since the stimulus began, Apple's value has gone up by about $1.2 trillion. Right. That's $4,000 for every American, just an increase in the value of uh, you, Apple. You just made my do point you, for me. Do you feel that Apple is somehow gouging or doing something wrong? Yes, of course. So, and Exxon is, and okay, Mobile is. So, so let's so talk let about me, Apple. Let's talk about Apple. Do you, do you think okay. Apple should just sell phones for less and not have enough phones? What would you have Apple, what would you have Apple do? You're saying to me, John, market forces are market forces. And if demand goes up, are you suggesting, young man, that Apple should charge less than they could charge? Let me flip that on you. When there's a tightness in the labor market, what you're saying is the workers shouldn't do the same that the workers just following the same capitalistic principles that allow Apple to charge more for their phones shouldn't charge more because wage inflation is driving every, inflation. That's not at all what I'm saying, John. That's exactly no, what you're no, saying. Actually, it isn't. Every worker should get as high a wage as they can. It would be a terrible idea. But the to Fed try to is going to intervene. The when, Fed is going no. to intervene to make that not possible. No, the Fed is intervening to control the overall level of demand growth. And what because will that do to goes, and what will that do to the labor market? Much faster. What will that do to the labor market? What will it do to the labor market? It will it is likely it. to lead to, to looser labor markets. Uh, a somewhat a uh, looser labor market. Exactly. We hope to minimize now, that uh, consequence. It will lead to somewhat a looser labor market. What does a looser labor market mean? It means that you've got higher unemployment, so it's harder to ask for a wage rise. Obviously, the lower unemployment is, the more bargaining power you have with your boss because they can't just say, well, if you want to pay rise, I'll fire you and hire someone else. Right? That, that's the real reason why capitalists really don't like low unemployment, because they like there to be a reserve, a reserve army of, of labor, to use the Marxist terminology, which is to say, we want to be able to discipline you by threatening to sack you, and we can only threaten to sack you if there are some unemployed people willing to take your place, right? Now, I think that interview um, was, as I say, very good. John Stewart came out on top, I think, by most accounts. But in the real world, the Federal Reserve and our Bank of England have just hiked interest rates. Right. So, Barnaby, my question for you. Are the Hawks like Larry Summers, however much they might get owned in an interview on Apple TV, are they still getting their way? Yes. And they'll keep getting their way as long as they have power. That's why it's so important that we've seen in recent months in Britain, the rebuilding of union strength. It's only by working people organizing and showing the kind of class consciousness that Larry Summers shows uh, that will change the game here. Um, Larry Summers knows that certain ideas are just taken for granted. You don't attack corporate profits. And it's no coincidence that those ideas are the profits that flow to the people he tends to have dinner with. Um, uh, he has a basic sense of class solidarity. Uh, the ruling class always does. The question is just whether the working class will too. You know, in the last quarter of 2022, corporate profits were higher in Britain than they've ever been on record, ever since records began. The last quarter of 2022, higher than ever. While people struggle to heat their homes, Shell oil company, doubled their profit to $40 billion, doubled it. Dividends were up 16.5% in 2022, 16.5% increase in one year. So just think of that when people whose pay hasn't risen in a decade, many of those people are uh, supporting the public services that have been shriveled and denied funding. Um, 
their pay hasn't risen in a decade. They ask for pay rises and they're told we can't afford it. But people who live on share prices um, have seen their pay go up by 16.5% in one year. The inflationary crisis is a crisis of prices rising faster than wages. That's why people struggle. struggle. Um, so to stop prices rising, you could control prices. You could ban certain price rises, as economists like Isabella Weber and others have suggested. You could cut record profits uh, 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 to ensure that to force companies to keep prices down rather than raising prices and profiting. Or you could do neither of those things. And you could instead cut wages so that millions of people had even less ability to meet rising prices and to heat their homes and to buy food. It's a choice about how to fight inflation. And the choice is a class question. It's a choice of class war. Who's going to pay the price? This crisis is a short-term effect of emerging from lockdown and disrupted supply chains, of price rises from a war in Ukraine, and a long-term effect, too, of sluggish productivity. And the choice to use that triple crisis to attack working-class living standards is a kind of successor in Britain to the Cameron Osborne austerity strategy after 2010. So in that case, the financial crisis that began on Wall Street and in the city of London was used to shut youth centres and to starve disabled people, to shrink the welfare state to meet a long-standing conservative aspiration. Now they want to cut real pay for working class people. They've cut the social wage. They've destroyed many of the institutions of social support for many millions of people in Britain using the financial crisis to launch that attack. Now they want to use this inflationary crisis to launch an attack on people's pay um, while ensuring that profits continue to soar more than ever. It's pretty obvious what's going on here. It is a class attack by those who profit on those who live by wages and the social safety net. It's a class war and it demands a class response, that is unions striking and, uh, and, and community groups and others organising against this ruling class attack. Also taxing the rich. I think we, we should be clear that that could also have an effect on inflation, right? Because that can lower demand in a much more equitable way than throwing people out of their jobs. And also, as Gary Stevenson put so well, especially in an interview he did with Aaron Bastani, if you have the rich getting richer and richer and richer, what they're going to be doing is competing over the goods that we need to survive, right? So the reason house prices are as high as they are is because people got very, very rich over the course of the pandemic, but let's say over the past 40 years, actually. And what they can do with that spare cash is pump up asset prices, and that makes the cost of living higher for the rest of us. So if you wanted to reduce inflation in a way which was a bit more equitable than raising interest rates, what you could do is tax the super rich. Doesn't seem too complicated to me. But even though Larry Summers really, really cares about inequality, inequality is a terrible thing, a terrible thing, but I just couldn't possibly do anything about it. You know, it wasn't like I was the most powerful person when it comes to the U U US economy under Bill Clinton when we decided not to raise taxes, but we did decide to cut welfare. You know, does he even believe what he's saying, Barnaby? One really powerful thing in that interview is this kind of end of history logic, which said in the 1990s that um, the, the lesson of the 1970s crisis of social democracy, of the 1990s downfall of the Soviet Union, was that any attempts to, um, to improve the world by the use of conscious human design, any attempts to say there are some big inequalities here, maybe we could try to construct better kinds of societies, that was bound to end in failure. Uh, the world is a vicious, miserable, nasty place. This is the kind of medieval thinking revived, and there's nothing you can do to make it any better. And it's a very powerful line because, in fact, Powerful people are constantly acting to change the world. They're acting to cut people's pay. They're acting to cut taxes on the wealthy. Um, they're acting to smash resistance to those things, whether it's in you know, passing laws that prevent unions from being able to organize freely. They're using the state always to do the things that they want to do. But they have this line that actually you can't do anything in the world, which is mobilized every time we want to make the world a better place. Pessimism is there, the stuff uh, of their nourishment. Um, and so here you see it reaching its ridiculous apex where Larry Summers says, yes, yes, inequality is dreadful. There's nothing you can do about it. When, of course, you could simply raise one of the lowest uh, uh, tax rates in the, in, the, in the Western world, the rate uh, in the United States. But that's, that's, we're told, completely impossible. To just get back to the most kind of basic um, uh, welfare state situation is simply impossible. The world just won't allow it. And so this kind of pessimism is mobilized every time we want to do anything to make the world more equal, even very simple, clear-cut things, like, for example, uh, introducing rent controls. No, you couldn't possibly do that. All the housing would disappear. 
We're going to run through some of the latest news when it comes to strikes in Britain. Junior doctors, who are members of the British Medical Association, have announced four further days of industrial action. The new strikes are due to take place straight after the Easter weekend, with walkouts from the 11th to the 15th of April. They're asking for pay restoration, which amounts to a 35% increase to make up for 15 years of real terms pay cuts. Robert Lawrenson is co-chair of the BMA's Junior Doctors Committee. He released this statement. It is with disappointment and great frustration that we must announce this new industrial action. The government has dragged its feet at every opportunity. It has not presented any credible offer and is refusing to accept that there is any case for pay restoration, describing our central ask as unrealistic and unreasonable. Now, you could say the 24% pay cut that doctors have had since 2010, that was unrealistic and unreasonable, but they got away with it anyway. You know, because there isn't anyone to hold it. There isn't anyone properly holding the government to account on this other than trade unions, people like the BMA. For their part, the government is accusing the BMA of being themselves, you know, unreasonable, of course. Straight out of the familiar playbook, Health Secretary Steve Barclay posted this on social media. I met the BMA's Junior Doctors Committee yesterday in the hope of beginning constructive talks. They placed a precondition on these talks of a 35% pay rise. That is unreasonable. My door remains open to constructive conversations as I have had with other health unions. Saffron Cordery is from NHS Providers, the membership organization for NHS trusts in England. So they're the employers, really. Um, she said this, this threatens the biggest disruption from NHS walkout so far. There should be no doubt about the scale of the impacts on patient staff and the NHS. Trust leaders understand why junior doctors feel they've been pushed to this point, but it's incumbent on all involved to urgently re-enter talks in good faith. Now, my impression of Steve Barclay is that he doesn't seem to enter talks in good faith. So we talked um, to some nurses um, last week about how they've come to their agreement. And actually there's like massive uproar basically in the grassroots of the nursing trade unions because they felt that their leadership sold out by signing up to some pretty unreasonable preconditions to get into talks with Steve Barclay. Because basically uh, uh, Steve Barclay seems to say to these union leaders, I'll only go into a talk with you if you guarantee that you're going to recommend whatever we come out with, which, you know, it's a good position to be in if you're on on on, on his side. You say, whatever we agree, you're going to have to recommend it to your members. If that's his precondition, you can see um, why those talks didn't go well. In other strike news, the RMT has suspended rail strikes that were due to take place on the 30th of March and the 1st of April. In a statement, the union said this, following further talks between RMT and the rail delivery group today, a proposal was tabled by uh, the rail delivery group, which could lead to a resolution to resolve the current rail dispute through a new offer. The National Executive Committee has therefore suspended strike action scheduled for the 30th of April. 30th of March, sorry, and 1st of April, the dispute remains on and the union will continue to make preparations for a reballot when the current mandate runs out in mid-May. So that is a trade union who is not willing to give up their leverage before they have signed on the dotted line. Of course, we'll be keeping you updated on the RMT dispute and we'll be speaking to junior doctors when they're back out on strike next month. Let's go straight on to our next story. We've got a lot to get through. Boris Johnson's appearance before Parliament's privileged... Going to start that one again. I was, I was going faster than I could manage. Boris Johnson's appearance before Parliament's Privileges Committee has been widely panned. And by most accounts, I was too stupid to realise I was breaking the rules I wrote. You know, it's not an especially impressive defence for a former Prime Minister. But not everyone agrees. This is today's Daily Mail front page. It's based on a story by Sarah Vine, obviously Michael Gove's ex-wife. Harmon's face was thunder. Boris was as agile as a cat, pure box office, but after four nitpicking hours, had a single mind been changed. Boris was agile like a cat. It was completely bizarre. I mean, she would have been in lots of dinner parties with Boris Johnson, and we still think it's sort of acceptable for her to be writing front pages on serious national newspapers, but there we are. Talking of serious things, this is Nadine Torres. This was her assessment. Boris Johnson, very clear today, not sure there is a reasonable person in the land who would think that the committee could do anything other than totally exonerate him and not before time either. I'm so glad she's got a Twitter account because otherwise I really would have missed her. She followed that up with a pretty mystifying comparison. It was the 20-year anniversary of the Iraq invasion this week. Did Tony Blair at any time face the scrutiny that Boris Johnson has repeatedly been subjected to, both at the dispatch box and before committees? No, of course not. He was a Labour PM and a Remainer. I don't think it had anything to do with him being a Remainer. That wasn't an issue there. I, have, I agree with her that illegally invading Iraq was a lot more serious than having a party during lockdown, right? <laughs> I, I don't necessarily take Nadine Doris 
at her word, though, considering this is the only thing she has said about Iraq this week. So obviously, important anniversary, 20 years. She is only raising this because she thinks it is a sort of bizarre reach defence she can make of her ally, Boris Johnson. We have a clip for you now. This is on his GB News show. It's Jacob Rees-Mogg. This position of Boris, his success in leading Brexit, that has ultimately led to him being in front uh, of the Privileges Committee today. It was never really about cake or curtains or indeed about Chris Pincher. It was fundamentally about Brexit and the reaction of the establishment to Boris as the figure of Brexit. If I am the Woolworths of Nigel Farage, Boris is the Fortnum Mason uh, of Brexiteers. And his opponents seem to suffer from Boris' spongiform encephalopathy, a newly discovered wasting disease of the brain which particularly affects metropolitan types and now known to be prevalent in Islington. These are the same politicians who vote to slash benefits for some of the poorest people in the country and then worry about their pay not going up enough and are prepared to stand on TV cameras and worry about that. These are the same politicians who have very little issue with a massive expansion of police powers during lockdown, which, to be honest, concern me, um, where the police were able to uh, patrol and harass those communities that they enjoy patrolling and harassing and were given free reign to do so. Politicians didn't much care, but when one of their mates was holding big parties... Um, uh, they they all appeared on mass his friends to to defend him. So you again, it's just a it's a simple case of, um, of 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 class loyalty. Some people matter, other people don't. You repress and harass the people who don't matter, and you support the people who do. But the interesting thing here from Nadine Doris and from Jacob Rees-Mogg is the attempt by the right to claim itself as a kind of anti-elitism, a kind of anti-establishment mantle, where the establishment becomes Islington, a word that combines some of the richest parts of London and some of the poorest. By the way. Um, uh, multiracial, of course, um, and that's part of why it's loathed. Um, uh, and um, and the establishment becomes uh, uh, anyone who supported remaining in the European Union, um, so that Tony Blair can be tagged along with uh, uh, nurses who uh, were exhausted during COVID and uh, followed all the rules while they were completely exhausted and 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 dilapidated, and now are furious at Boris Johnson, and so they too become part of the establishment of the metropolitan elite if they happen to live in cities or um, or, or uh, greedy public sector workers if they if they don't um, who need to be uh, have their pay cut. Um, so this redefinition of who's in the establishment and who's in the elite allows people like Jacob Rees-Mogg to position himself as a as a crusader for uh, for the dispossessed. Uh, while supporting Boris Johnson as a man, Jacob Rees-Mogg, who was filmed as a child talking about his aspirations to make enormous amounts of money, presumably off the backs of other people, make that money by trading off other people's labour, um, and who's lived his whole life trading off other people's labour, um, benefiting from an amassed family fortune and a nanny who travels around with him everywhere he goes. Um, he, uh, the representative of uh, British uh, ruling class, which has wrought havoc in Britain and all over the world, gets to position himself as a, a champion of the underdog um, uh, uh, in, a, in a politics which is designed to get to, to, to trick uh, poor and oppressed people into supporting uh, someone like Boris Johnson as a kind of heroic truth teller. This is the stuff that Nigel Farage, of course, has thrived on for years, while in fact the goal of this politics is to further entrench privilege and power everywhere that they find it. Let's go to our final story. This Friday, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu is set to visit the UK. The timing of his meeting with Rishi Sunak is controversial, even among people usually supportive of Israel. That's because Netanyahu is currently subject to widespread protests by Israeli citizens. The dispute is over Netanyahu's plans to limit the powers of the Supreme Court to rule against the Prime Minister and his government. Netanyahu also wants to have the power to select judges, and his far-right coalition government has passed laws to stop him from being removed from power over a series of corruption charges. Thousands of Israelis are taking part in a day of paralysis, blocking motorways and setting fires. Um, it's the latest in a series of large-scale protests that have rocked the country for the last two months. But as well as the timing of the visit, an agreement which the UK signed with Israel earlier this week is also raising eyebrows. The agreement, which was signed by the British Foreign Secretary James Cleverly and his Israeli counterpart, pledges to deepen tech, trade and security ties between the two countries. The agreement covers joint research programs and cooperation to further cyber security. And it also agrees to use concern about anti-Semitism to protect the Israeli government from criticism. Oh, of course it did. 
Now, these are just some of the things agreed to in the document. So first, tackling the disproportionate focus on Israel in the UN and other international bodies, including attempts to delegitimize it or deny its right to self-defense. All states have a duty to comply with their obligations under international law, but scrutiny must be measured, impartial and proportionate. The UK and Israel will work together to tackle the singling out of Israel in the Human Rights Council, as well as in other international bodies. In this context, the UK and Israel disagree with the use of the term apartheid with regard to Israel. So they've agreed in a trade deal, we're not going to call you apartheid. Even, you know, not just we're not going to call you, we, we, we explicitly disagree with it. The agreement also states this, both countries are committed to fighting all forms of anti-Semitism, including its modern form of delegitimization of the state of Israel, as elaborated in the International Holocaust Remembrance Association or Alliance, I think it is, definition, the IRA definition. So that's the one where you're not allowed to say that Israel's a racist endeavor. It also says this, the UK reaffirms its objection to boycotts, divestment and sanctions campaigns. Such campaigns are at variance with UK government policy and not only unfairly single out Israel and undermine efforts to advance Israeli-Palestinian dialogue and reconciliation, but can contribute to the deplorable rise of anti-Semitism in the UK. The UK is committed to ending any such campaigns by public bodies, including through legislation. Barnaby, what is going on here? You've got a deal which is supposedly about oh, our high-tech country and your high-tech country. Let's do some common investments. And then you end up with these huge passages about how we are going to help Israel use concerns about anti-Semitism to basically completely silence criticism of a country which is committing apartheid. I mean, what's your take? Just this week, uh, the Israeli government announced having the week before promised that it was going to try to de-escalate uh, tensions. They treat these promises like a joke. Just this week, the Israeli government announced that several settlements evacuated in the West Bank bypassed Israeli governments, settlements so deep in the tiny fragments that remain of Palestinian territory that even past Israeli governments took the um, uh, empty, empty move of agreeing to evacuate those few settlements. Just this week, the new Israeli government announced that it will allow those settlers to return to those settlements. 250 Palestinians murdered in the last year in the West Bank and elsewhere by uh, Israeli forces. Why? What, what's going on there? Well, it's an attempt to fragment the colonized territory so dramatically that any hopes of an independent Palestinian state there, the so-called two-state solution, becomes impossible because the Israelis can say, as they do, the facts on the ground make it impossible. And then, having smashed uh, by expanding uh, settlements, the possibility of any independent Palestinian state, the attempt by uh, your uh, armed forces, your army, to smash any resistance to that process of ongoing colonization, to arrest, to torture, to simply shoot in the head, to murder uh, Palestinians, uh, civilians and, and militants alike. Um, Israeli government ministers are quite open about this. They're open to their public, they're open to their electorate, and they keep winning elections by being open about it. They, they talk about the two-state solution as a, as a dead project and not one that interests them. And yet, here's the telling thing. Their supporters overseas keep talking in this language of peace and two-state solutions as they funnel cash to uh, a state whose leaders say they have no interest in that project and show by their actions that they have interest only in maintaining and aggravating the violent domination of an indigenous people. So it's a hopeless language, this language of peace and a two-state solution, which Keir Starmer uh, peppers his speeches with whenever he talks about Israel. So do American presidents, so do British prime ministers. It's a hopeless language. Here's a better one. Palestinians are marked out like indigenous people who once lived where I live, where I'm now sitting in New York. Palestinians are marked out like black South Africans, like Algerians, like so many others have been to be dispossessed, to make room for colonizing settlers to police the region. And why does, why does that process happen? Why is it supported uh, uh, around the world? Because the world's biggest imperial power finds it useful to have some settlers policing the region. Britain once felt that way about Zionists. Churchill, Winston Churchill, called Israel a little Jewish Ulster. Uh, the Jewish settlers were going to do what Protestant settlers had done for Britain in Ireland. And now America feels precisely the same way. So this is a problem of very violent settler colonialism, um, attempting to uh, eradicate an indigenous population, drive them from the land, uh, uh, Palestinians, the world's biggest refugee population. Very violent settler colonialism sustained by imperialism, by a... Uh, uh, 
once Britain and now America, are understanding this settler state as useful for them in the region. All of this is racist. It's racist all the way down. That is to say, it takes some people, Palestinians, as worthy of dispossession, of murder, of imprisonment, of exile, in order to make room for the strategic interests of imperial powers to be championed by a violent settler colony. It's racist. One couldn't, one could hardly think of a clearer cut example of a racist policy than the policy of imperially sustained settler colonial violence, add class violence into the mix um, uh, when you can co-opt a section of the Palestinian bourgeoisie to support the project. It's all racist, it's all violent. And yet, here's the most brutal thing about our racist universe, opposition to it is now cast as racist. So I've written and spoken a lot about problems of anti-Semitism, how to think about anti-Semitism. It's simply disgusting in a moment of rising anti-Semitism all around the world and all kinds of reasons for that rise and, and often violent anti-Semitism, that rather than, than, than confronting that rise, Jews are used um, as convenient props so that we can be told that, uh, that, that Jews are attacked and made to feel unsafe uh, by attacks on a violent settler colony. And Palestinians whose homes are bulldozed, whose schools and hospitals are bombed, whose children are martyred, Palestinians are told that they're racists for objecting to their own ethnic cleansing. That's the kind of sick universe, I think, uh, that we inhabit. Um, and it shows that, that the people, whether they're Israeli prime ministers or the foreign leaders who support them, who claim to be very concerned about Jews and claim to be anti-racist, those people have absolutely nothing in common with any anti-racism. They're all racists. Thank you so much for watching this evening. We'll be back tomorrow at 6pm. For now, you've been watching Navarro Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Novara Media. Go to novaramedia.com slash support.